You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be looking at mobile phone base stations, parenteral nutrition, and the latest research on bevacizumab or Avastin. First of all, this week, since mobile phones have been around, there have been public concerns about their safety. Fears over radiation exposure causing cancer have been particularly trenchant. This week on BMJ.com, Paul Elliott and his colleagues have published research looking for an increase in the incidence of childhood cancers around mobile phone base stations. He joins us in the studio. If you like, these results are very reassuring in terms of uh, cancer risk in young children with respect to uh, uh, their exposures around the time of birth and in the pregnancy period. Also this week, NCPOD, the National Confidential Inquiry into Patient Outcome and Death, have published a report on parenteral nutrition. Kate McCann talks to Jim Stewart, one of the authors of the study, about their somewhat shocking findings. Mm-hmm. Did you really expect it to be that bad? No, we didn't. I mean, we knew it was going to be pretty poor, but we didn't realise quite how poor it was going to be. Finally this week, Bevacizumab, or Avastin, has been used for the off-label treatment of age-related macular degeneration for some time. This week in the BMJ, we have published research looking at the effectiveness of this biological over what was the standard NHS treatment. I'll be talking to Adnan Tuffel, one of the study's authors, about their findings. What we wanted was an agent that stabilised or even recovered some of the lost vision, hence the purpose of the trial. But before all that, Trevor Jackson, the BMJ's magazine editor, gives us an overview of this week's print journal. Now, it's been a budget in the UK this week, Trevor, and we've covered a lot of it in the journal. Uh, What have we got? We've got a number of stories which focus on the proposed spending cuts to tackle budget deficits and what the effect of those will have on healthcare and what doctors and health managers can do about it, not just in this country, but also internationally. Um, But first of all, we've got a report looking at how some GP practices are offering employment and education advice to patients as well as health services. And there's one practice in North London that has had an employment advisor since 2001 to provide life skills counselling and help people back into work or training. And this practice has found that 80% of those patients who have participated in the scheme have found work within a year, that GP consultations have fallen by 20% and that prescriptions for antidepressants have reduced by 19%. Um, The article ends with a quote from Chris Drinkwater, who's president of the NHS Alliance, which represents GPs, talking about the value of psychological therapies to help people who are going through tough times. And he says, yes, you can get people on cognitive behavioural therapy and it will get them to think a bit more positively about themselves. But unless you do something about the environment in which they live, they're just likely to relapse. And without real jobs, decent housing and adequate incomes, people are going to be at risk of becoming ill again. And this points to the whole issue of health inequalities and the link between poverty and ill health, which is a theme of this week's BMJ. In a sense, how much is ill health a social problem and how much is it a medical problem? Thanks, Trevor. And we'll have more of that next week in the podcast with an interview with health economist Martin McKee. We'll be asking him about the budget now it's been published. I'm now joined by Paul Elliott, who's a professor of epidemiology and public health medicine, and the director of the MRC HPA Centre for Environment and Health at Imperial College London. And Paul and his colleagues have published research this week on bmj.com looking at mobile phone base stations and early childhood cancers. 
Now, polls, as long as there have been mobiles, there have been public fears about uh, links between base stations and mobile phones themselves and possible health risks. Is there any sort of plausible biological mechanism for it causing cancer? Of course, uh, we're talking about uh, radio frequency exposures, which is non-ionising radiation. And I think it's fair to say there is no known radiobiological explanation for a cancer excess. Despite the lack of biological mechanism at the moment, there have still been studies about the effect of exposure. How many of them have there been and how good were they? There have been one or two reports of excesses of cancers around one or two specific uh, base stations, but really these were very uh, non-systematic studies and there's always the potential that there could have been bias in the selection of the areas for study. So what's special about our study is that we went to all the national data on mobile phone base station antennas, on the uh, cancer cases in young children ages 0 to 4 years, and we also looked for controls to the National Birth Register. So we had no preconceived ideas where there may or may not be excesses in any one particular area, but we were able to look at all the data. Okay, and once you analysed that data, what did you find? Well, uh, we, what we did was we looked at uh, the location of, of the birth address of uh, the cancer cases and also uh, a selection of controls. We had four controls per case, and we uh, estimated the um, not only distance of each of those individuals from the nearest base station antenna, but also looked at uh, estimates of exposure to, to the base stations themselves. And essentially, we found no difference between the cases and the controls. So if you like, these results are very reassuring in terms of uh, cancer risk in young children with respect to uh, uh, their exposures around the time of birth and in the pregnancy period. Okay. And which cancers were you looking at in children? So we looked at all uh, childhood cancers. Uh, uh, the commonest uh, is uh, leukemia and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And also we looked specifically at brain cancers and, and then at all other childhood cancers at, at, at those ages. Now, different cancers have different prevalences. How did that affect the confidence intervals in your study? Yes, uh, clearly uh, leukaemia is the, the commonest of the specific cancers, so the confidence intervals, because we had more cases, will be narrower for leukaemia than for brain cancer, uh, and obviously narrower again for all cancers. So clearly there is some uh, imprecision in our estimates. I mean, this is a very large study. We had more than 1,300 cancer cases overall, and uh, with the controls, we were looking at uh, around 7,000 children. So it's a very big study, but these are rare diseases. Uh, so uh, even with that um, large numbers, we, we, we still obviously have a, a, an element of uh, imprecision around those estimates. But uh, there was course. no evidence that they were in excess of one, which would, you know, so there's no indication that there was an excess risk. Sure. Now, with any epidemiological study, it's always hard to take into account confounding factors. Um, and with this one in particular, because you're looking at exposure to, to radiation, that can change with you know, the environment and the, the building that people are living in. How did you manage to account for, for all of those in your study? So we, uh, we, we had a model that looked at uh, estimated uh, power density at the birth address, which did take... Uh, into account some degree of uh, line of sight. But we weren't, of course, able to take account of building effects, so we couldn't really estimate what the actual exposure was uh, inside the home, nor, of course, did we have information on how 
people moved about in their daily activities. So these are estimated at the residential address, and that's clearly a limitation of the study. Uh, in terms of potential confounders, we did take account of things such as uh, population density of the areas where people are living, because there is some suggestion that there are slightly different rates of uh, leukaemia and brain cancer in rural compared to urban areas, uh, and we took account of uh, a measure of deprivation uh, as, uh, in order to account for those potential confounders in our analyses. Yep. Now, this is a negative study in the media. Notoriously, doesn't like negative studies. How has it been picked up? I believe you've been doing quite a few interviews already. Yes, I think there's, there is a lot of interest because people are concerned about, uh, you know, if you ask people, um, they are concerned about uh, base, base stations and location of base stations. It should be said and, uh, that the exposure that we receive from the base station is much lower, orders of magnitude lower, than you get during the use of the phone. So when you hold the phone up to your head, obviously you're getting a much higher exposure to the head than you would get from, from base stations. Mm -hmm. The thing about base stations is although they're very low-level exposures, they're more or less continuous, and of course you use the phone and you get the highest exposure when you're actually using the phone. And we can estimate that you know, a, a day's worth of base station exposure is something like you know, a few seconds, maybe four seconds, of actual use of a mobile phone to the head. And are you doing any work like this study looking at mobile handsets instead of base stations? Yeah, so this study was specifically about um, base stations and base station exposures, but there's also obviously a lot of interest in mobile phone exposures, and the research to date has been reassuring for use of less than, say, about 10 years. But of course, this um, uh, technology is being rolled out nationally and internationally you know, to, to millions of people. And it hasn't been used for that long. So there are still question marks about longer-term exposures. And uh, we've set up with, uh, with colleagues in, in, in Europe a, a big international study called the COSMOS study, where we're um, getting data now on uh, people's use of phones. So we've gone to mobile phone subscribers. And then we're following them up over 10, 20, 30 years to see who might develop disease. And then we'll be able to relate that back to their exposures now today you know, in, a, in a prospective cohort study. Okay, well, we'll look forward to seeing that when it comes out. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And you can read that research online for free on bmj.com. Now, NCPOD, the National Confidential Inquiry into Patient Outcome and Death, publish regular reports looking at areas of care within the NHS. The latest report looks at parenteral nutrition and how well, or badly, that's delivered to patients. Kate McCann talks to Jim Stewart, a clinical coordinator on the report, about their findings. So can you tell us a little bit more about how um, NCPOD chooses what it's going to study and why in particular parental nutrition was chosen this time around? Every year the uh, NCPOD puts out a call for study proposals and we receive proposals from um, anyone who has a vested interest in, in healthcare issues. In 2007, um, we uh, put it in a proposal, actually an in-house proposal, to um, look at parental nutrition. Now, normally within NCPOD, we tend to use death as, a, as an outcome marker for our, our audits, um, but we thought parental nutrition would be interesting because it would be a diversion from this and um, would allow us to look at um, uh, the quality of care around uh, patients rather than using um, death as, a, as an outcome. The, 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 the proposal to look at parental nutrition went through our steering group and by a democratic process, it was um, uh, decided that um, we would undertake that study and the data collection started in 2008. From reading the report, only 19% of patients on PN fulfilled the criteria of 
good practice. Mm-hmm. Did you really expect it to be that bad? No, we didn't. I mean, we knew it was going to be pretty poor, but we didn't realise quite how poor it was going to be. It's important to realise that when we use the term good practice, it's not a it's not a high standard we're looking for. It's just an acceptable standard or a standard that will be accepted by those clinicians who are reviewing the case. We really didn't expect it to be quite as bad as it was. Why do you think it was so bad? Well, what we've tried to do in the report is to kind of dissect down or drill down to the different issues around the administration of prevention nutrition to try and answer that question. Whilst we haven't got a kind of encapsulating answer, we, we have shown that the, the assessment of patients both prior and during um, the administration of French nutrition and, uh, was poor. Um, but not only that, in fact, we found that um, 40% of the adult patients um, developed metabolic complications, half of which were thought to be avoidable. So there are lots of different issues. And I think when you kind of put those issues together to create one picture, that's why we uh, have an overall standard appears poor. Do you think mainly then it was clinical errors or administrative errors that were responsible? Well, what we've shown is that for a third of patients, it was actually clinical errors that were responsible. It was rarely organisational errors. So for those uh, patients in the adult study, which numbered 877, we found that a third of them, there was room for improvement in their care around clinical issues alone. Who do you think were responsible for these errors? I suspect it's the high-volume users of PN, which sounds um, rather obvious, but one of the things we found is that um, the majority of patients in our study were post-surgical patients, and we have a suspicion that surgeons, although they have the expertise to know when a patient might need parental nutrition, they probably don't have the expertise beyond that in monitoring and, and looking after these patients. And that begs the question of whether there should be more nutrition teams in hospitals to kind of pick up these patients and ensure they're looked after properly. I'm sure it's not just a surgical problem, but as the highest volume users in the study, I, I'm sure it, 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 it points in that direction. Okay, so you've mentioned surgical issues there. Um, In the report, it says that 29% of patients, PN was administered for inappropriate reasons. What particular sort of reasons was it administered for then? The easiest way to answer that question is to use an example, and perhaps one of the the most um, uh, outstanding examples of bad practice was was a a gentleman who was admitted with a food bolus obstruction. He swallowed some meat and he developed absolute dysphagia. Now, Now, normally, that would be treated with a an endoscopy and removal of the food bolus and um, the patient would be sorted and out of hospital that day. In fact, we found with this patient he was in hospital for four days awaiting endoscopy and, and bizarrely was put on parenteral nutrition during that time. Now, that, that that's not only a totally inappropriate indication of parenteral nutrition but also very poor practice in all, all aspects of his care. But there was also some, some end-of-life cases where patients with um, advanced cancer who were clearly moribund and only had um, you know, one or two days to live or being started on prevention nutrition. Whilst we wouldn't um, ever advocate not giving patients with advanced cancer parenteral nutrition if, if they've been assessed appropriately in a multidisciplinary environment, there are clearly cases where death is imminent and, and parenteral nutrition is, is, is completely inappropriate. And obviously in the study that you were comparing the information from both neonates and adults, do you think it was managed better in a particular group or worse in a particular group? Well, one of the things that interested us is the fact that it was the, the problems were reflected a, a across the age groups, both in the neonates and in the adults, and um, they were very similar both in, in um, their prevalence and their frequency. I suppose one of the rem- uh, noticeable things about the study is that the, the age range of the study goes from pre-term babies at 26 weeks up to adults of 99 years old and yet the deficiencies seem to be 
uh, present across the spectrum of life. Do you think this is a UK problem or do you think this could be in a generalised worldwide? I suspect it's, it's, it's generalised worldwide. It's, it's difficult to speak for other first world countries, but I imagine in, um, in second and third world countries, it, problems are even worse. It would be interesting to see if there have been any comparative audits in the States. We're not aware of any, but um, I would imagine that these problems are, 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 are similar um, worldwide. Obviously, changes are going to need to be implemented. Um, what would you recommend to overcome this problem? Well, I think that we need to start at basics. The most basic thing is we need to improve undergraduate and postgraduate education in, in nutrition in all its guises. I mean, it's woefully taught in medical schools and, uh, and in postgraduate centres. And, you know, the majority of clinicians, unless they have an interest in nutrition, really have no idea uh, about it at all. We also need to ensure that those high-volume users of parental nutrition, such as surgeons, um, have the wherewithal, the knowledge and the skills to be able to monitor and understand this intervention once they've um, requested for it to be initiated. And, you know, for this to be done, it, it, for this to be achieved, it's going to have, the findings of the report are going to have to be taken on by all the stakeholders, Royal College of Surgeons, uh, Physicians, uh, Department of Health and NICE. And we'd like to see all those, those groups um, promote this uh, as, as much as possible to try and improve standards because, you know, they really are very poor. Um, you mentioned about medical school education. Do you think it's something the GMC should be pushing for in the undergraduate syllabus? Um, I do, and the GMC have shown interest in um, uh, the findings of our study. We're awaiting their full response, but um, I certainly think it should be in the undergraduate syllabus. It, it, it's bizarre to me that nutrition, which is the very kind of staff of life, um, is something that isn't really taught. Um, and um, the analogy I'm always using is that if you, you know, if you took your pet dog to a, to a vet and asked him what you should be feeding it, it'd be fairly basic knowledge for the vet to give you an answer, and you'd expect that. But the same can't be said of the medical profession. They seem to have a complete dearth of knowledge around the basics of nutrition, and when it comes to parental nutrition, have no knowledge at all. Thank you very much for joining us today, Jim. And that report is available in full on the NCPOD website. Now finally, in this week's BMJ, we've published new research into the drug bevacizumab and its effectiveness in treating age-related macular degeneration. I'm joined in the studio by Adnan Tafel, a consultant ophthalmologist from Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. So Adnan, for a start, bevacizumab is one of the growing range of biologicals, and it was originally licensed to treat advanced colorectal cancer. How does it work to reduce AMD? Um, it is felt that the main uh, chemical that causes blood vessels to grow and leak under the centre of the back of the eye called the macula is a chemical called vascular endothelial growth factor. And bevacizumab is an antibody that binds it and stops blood vessels leaking and growing and therefore causing scarring and visual loss in this condition. Okay, does it actually reverse some of the uh, damage done or does it um, just prevent it progressing? It um, prevents the progression of blood vessel growth, but by causing regression of the swelling in many patients, um, there is visual recovery, which is highly encouraging. Does the treatment with bevacizumab for AMD differ in any way to the treatment um, for colorectal cancer? Yes, for colorectal cancer, relatively large doses are needed to be given intravenously. To treat the eye, a, a tiny dose is needed, which is 1.25 milligrams in one twentieth of a mil, and that's just deposited into the eye by an injection under local anaesthetic. 
and the patient just goes straight home afterwards. Now, your study is looking at the effectiveness of vivacizumab against what was the NHS treatment at the time. So could you just describe what that treatment was and how it compares? In 2006, we had two agents that we had access or partial access to on the NHS, one called vertoporphyrin photodynamic therapy and another one called pegaptinib sodium, um, both of which were effective therapies compared to no therapy at all, but the average patient still continued to lose vision, but at a a slower rate than with no treatment. What we wanted was an agent that stabilised or even recovered some of the lost vision, hence the purpose of the trial. Okay, and what did you find? We found that that bevacizumab was superior compared to the other agents used at that time at both recovering vision and stabilising vision, with the average patient recovering vision. And was it much more effective? Over three lines of visual gain difference between the two arms, which was highly statistically significant. And when you say three lines, how you mean the the lines on an eye chart? Lines on a very particular eye chart that we use um, in research trials. Now, one of the concerns about using bevacizumab for AMD was the lack of safety data. Were you able to look at that at all? Clearly, part of the reason we did the trial was this drug was used in an unregulated fashion at the time in 2006. We wanted to know whether it was um, efficacious, but also whether it was safe. Now, all trials um, for, uh, to date for AMD are designed to look at efficacy and powered for that. But in addition, we actively looked at safety data. There were no undue safety concerns, both for the eye itself and in the general health of the patient within the trial design. There's a rapid response to your article, essentially saying that there could be other safety concerns about retinal pigment epithelial or photoreceptor injury. Uh, How would you respond to that? Although we share his concerns about the class of action of this group of drugs on these tissues in animal models, the simple fact is that in clinical trials of both bevacizumab and ranibizumab, none of these abnormalities have been found in the trials. And essentially, patients do much better uh, with their vision, with the treatment, than without the treatment. And a much more detailed response to this um, is found in our response to that concern, which is on the website. Now, you mentioned the ranibizumab, um, Lucentis. I'm sure lots of our listeners will know or have heard of the ongoing controversy about using the two drugs. Your trial, does that answer any of those? No, our trial was started before ranibizumab was available uh, in the UK readily. Therefore, our trial was not, was not comparing directly to ranibizumab. Both drugs are the only two drugs currently av- are easily available that on average recover patient's vision. Therefore, both drugs are I would advocate to treat patients. There are ongoing head-to-head trials that will more specifically answer that question. And finally, Adnan, what are the clinical implications of your trial in the NHS and, and all around the world? Well, we are very fortunate in the UK that we have ranibizumab approved by NICE. And as I've already mentioned, our trial was not designed to say whether our drug was superior uh, or the same as ranibizumab. 
But in many countries in the world, they have no ready uh, access or affordable access to the licensed drug. Given our drug, rather like ranibizumab, on average recovers vision, we would strongly advocate its use in um, the majority of the world that do not have ready access to ranibizumab. Well, Adnan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Now, that's all for this week. Next week, as I said, we'll be talking to Martin McKee about what the budget means for patients. We'll also have the second part of Sofiari's report of the experiences of aid workers in Haiti. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.